Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody, from a rather cloudy San Francisco on January 4th in early 2022. Uh, so far this year, for regular viewers of the show knows, we've been on a search, a journey for meaning. Uh, yesterday, we had two uh, professors of philosophy from Notre Dame University um, in Indiana in the United States, Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko on the search for meaning. Um, they have a new book out and for um, people watching this, we have a picture of a monkey in a mirror. I'm not sure what the Lit Hub people were thinking of in this search for uh, meaning in terms of that kind of representation. Uh, but the Sullivan Blaschko book is called The Good Life Method, uh, reasoning through the big questions of happiness, faith and meaning. And I think what these philosophers suggested is if we can understand the great philosophers of the past, we will also understand happiness, faith, and meaning. Philosophers like Socrates, of course, uh, who they began with, uh, Aristotle, uh, William James, a modern American philosopher, Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish philosopher, and even W.E.B. Du Bois, who they talked about and who we talked about. Um, it was interesting in terms of this search for meaning. Uh, when I was talking to Melon, Megan Sullivan, we came up um, with the issue of nihilism, uh, and uh, which touched on my guest today, Wendy Seifert, who's the author of a, a book called The Sunny Nihilist, um, which uh, is a book, I think, very much in vivid contrast with uh, the good life method and and here was um uh megan uh megan sullivan's uh response when we talked about nihilism and wendy you mentioned nihilism earlier uh megan uh, as it happens tomorrow uh, wendy seifert the australian writer is on she has a new book out the sunny nihilist how a meaningless life can make you truly happy should be read probably side by side with your good life method, reasoning through big questions of happiness, faith, and meaning. Uh, isn't though the nihilist tradition, isn't that very strong in philosophy? Um, Nietzsche, of course, uh, enormously influential, late 19th, early 20th century philosopher. Uh, you write in your book about Kierkegaard. How do you counter nihilism in your work? I wouldn't think of Nietzsche or Kierkegaard as nihilist. There are certainly some nihilists in the tradition, but it's a it's a pretty hard uh, view to sustain. That's why I'm super interested in reading Wendy's book. I think it's a total, yeah. totally ironic slash wonderful feature of history that we have the same publication date for the Good Life Method and the Sunny Nihilist because. Well, I think well, we have Wendy Seifert from a very sunny Melbourne, or I'm assuming Wendy a much sunnier Melbourne than. Um than the current weather in wintry San Francisco. Uh, Wendy, is there any proof in this coincidence of me interviewing um, uh, the Good Life Method and you uh, as the Sunny Nihilist back to back? Does that prove there really is meaning in history and in the world? 
I would say it's more of an example of uh, when chaos aligns in a way that we can interpret as meaning, it kind of makes you realize how kind of uh, fun and special it can be because it's pointless. But um, I will mirror her points. That sounds like the books do sound like the uh, very aligned reading. I've got to check that one out. The word nihilist uh, we, we talked about with, um, with Blaschko and Sullivan in a philosophical sense. When you in your book um, talk about uh, nihilism, um, in the sunny nihilist, do you mean it in a philosophical sense? How are you approaching the word itself, nihilist? Yeah, nihilism's a funny one. I kind of say in the book that I really see all philosophies, including nihilism, as being a window to peer through. So it's kind of a starting point with a bunch of ideas that you can use to kind of challenge and maybe disassemble some of the structures that you build your own life around. But I mean, I would say with any systems of meaning or philosophy, they by nature shouldn't be fixed things. They should be things that you sort of take into your own life, you play with, you pull apart, you put back together. Um, so see it as a tool rather than a dogma, I would say. Are there particular writers, Wendy, who influenced this book on sunny nihilism? Uh, for example, did you read Nietzsche, who of course is uh, a rather controversial father of certainly modern 20th and 21st century nihilism. I did read Nietzsche. He gets a lot of shout outs in the book and I spent a lot of time thinking about him and reading responses to him and talking to people about him. The thing about Nietzsche, which is so funny, is that he is obviously kind of the godfather of nihilism in so many ways. But um, as was just referenced before, I don't think Nietzsche would have thought of himself as a nihilist. And as the book sort of does explore, I think that if he looked at the mainstream kind of understanding, this kind of often very flat version of what we think about when we think about nihilism, he'd probably be kind of devastated by it. I think he was very interested in systems of power and meaning and how they control our lives and interrogating our relationship to meaning more broadly. But while he probably wasn't the guy you'd want to sit next to on a train, I don't think that he really represented the sort of bleak uh, interpretation of nihilism that often gets kind of like pushed to the front of the crowd. Uh, if anything, the story of how his writing has been, I mean, from his lifetime up until now, has been kind of manipulated to represent a lot of stuff that he really didn't believe in is actually kind of pretty sad. Sad for who? For him? Sad for him. And I think probably sad for a lot of other people who maybe were on the, the wrong side of a, a more toxic, less sunny version of nihilism. Um, the book uh, yesterday, uh, Sullivan and Blaschko's The Good Life Method, subtitle is Reasoning Through the Big Hist Questions of Happiness, Faith and Meaning. I think the key in the subtitle is faith. I suspect that both of these professors from Notre Dame are religious, probably Catholic, um, and they're trying to slip religion back into the back door of our consciousness, of our way of life, suggesting that it can provide meaning. Nietzsche's quote-unquote nihilism was very much a response to his observation that God is dead, which perhaps also got misinterpreted and misquoted in lots of different ways. But how central is the death of traditional religion and your declaration of sunny nihilism? Can one be religious and also be a nihilist? 
I'm a big believer in cherry picking when it comes to philosophies or religions or anything like that. And I talk about religion in the book. I have a whole chapter on it in which I explore, to be totally frank, my own probably detangling from religion over my life. But saying that while Nietzsche was very much an atheist and, you know, I say he wasn't as bad as everyone says, that's probably unless you came to him, you know, with scripture. And then he might have a few sharp words to say to you. My kind of interest with religion in relation to nihilism is not so much just a blanket saying that the two things cannot coexist. It's more that I see nihilism as a really handy sort of tool to interrogate the systems around us that are often put into place to control us that are can be very cleverly hidden from view. And whether that's, you know, traditional structures of work or family or love or religion or power or health or wellness or what, you know, we have all these new interpretations of that now. So I kind of come into it not saying that, you know, there is no place for religion within a philosophical debate, but rather I think any system that is telling you this is right, this is wrong, this is how the world fundamentally looks and is, these are the rules that were decided without your input thousands of years before you were born but will completely dictate your life. My kind of question is, I think that we as individuals need to stop just seeing that as being some kind of like fundamental universal meaning that is as solid as the ground beneath our feet and actually start asking, okay, why do I believe this? Who is telling me this thing? What are they trying to get out of me? And how is this trying to control my life in a way that might not actually be completely serving or putting me first? Uh, Wendy, one thing that was interesting in terms of reading these books back to back and talking to you and Sullivan and Blaschko back to back is that you're both interested in the concept of happiness. Um, I looked up happiness on Wikipedia, of course. Where else does one look these sorts of things up? We have an image of a smiling 95-year-old man from Chile. And then, of course, in terms of philosophy, lots of references to Aristotle and Nietzsche. Who else? You suggest that nihilism could be a path to happiness. What do you mean by happiness and why is happiness so important in your work and your thinking? Yeah, it's funny. Everyone's been talking about their news resolutions this week. And I was saying to my partner the other day, I've kind of come to think of less about what I want to achieve and what I want and more about how I want to feel. And I think when most people say, how do you want to feel? The answer is just, you know, basically happy. Something that I find so interesting about like this quest for meaning that we're all on, whether that's through an Instagram post or through a lifelong, you know, dedication to religion or philosophy. And Instagram, do people get meaning through an Instagram post? I think there is some, um, some motivational Instagram posts that are telling them, telling each other they're out there trying to find meaning is that often when we think about meaning and we kind of think about these big ideas and we go looking for these kind of like grand answers that are sort of anchored somewhere in the future in some maybe one day that if you align all these perfect ducks in a row you'll you know unlock some rubik's cube that will sort of free your brain and your heart and you'll feel you know a bliss a moment of bliss and salvation seconds before your death or whatever is that they sort of really anchor us in the one day or in the future and they can really pull us away from the immediate and the right now and something i like about nihilism is when you say Ultimately, none of this matters. You don't matter. No one's going to remember you. None of your achievements are ever going to like build up towards anything. Once you kind of stare into that abyss and don't let it completely crush you, it does have a funny way of detangling you from those sort of like one day maybe meaningful conversations. 
And it puts you into this, really into your body and your reality of right now, into saying, okay, so if the only thing I know is real is today and it only exists for one day and then it is gone, it will never come back, it will never mean anything, it will never be repeated. So all I really have is this moment. I think the questions of like what actually makes us happy become a lot more immediate and also a lot more tangible and the answers do as well. So when you really think about what makes you happy, it's probably not that one day maybe I'll get that corner office or maybe one day my work will be remembered far beyond my death. It's, you know, I had a really great chat to a parent on the phone or I had a great walk with a friend or it's sunny here or I'm going to leave work 15 minutes early so I can try and get a swim in before dinner. And I think that so often when we go after these big quests of, you know, meaning in the search for some kind of like very complicated abstract understanding of happiness, we just become further and further removed from the actual proven quantifiable things that make us happy right now that are a little bit less glamorous perhaps, but I would say are a lot more rewarding in the long term. Is there a Buddhist quality to your thinking? Um, certainly uh, in the Wikipedia section on um, nihilism, there's quite a lot on Buddhism. And I, I, I sense that there was an element of non non-Western religiosity in your work? Yeah, I think there definitely is. Um, I often think a lot about mindful nihilism, which I think, you know, obviously owes a lot to Buddhism. And one Isn't thing that, that a contradiction in terms, mindful nihilism? Well, I would say mindfulness in the sense of bringing you back to the immediate, the being like hyper aware of the right now, as opposed to the kind of like getting tangled up into the abstract. And talking about Buddhism, there's this practice that I chat about in the book, which I practice myself, and I will say does take a little bit of work because it can be a bit confronting. It's this form of sort of death meditation, uh, which was developed by a neuroscientist and a Buddhist nun with this idea of you focus on your breath and each breath you tell yourself, this is my last breath, this is my last inhale, this is my last exhale, which, I mean, in reality, who knows, every breath could be our last breath, you never know what's going to happen. And you sort of start doing this thing and it first feels very silly and then it feels kind of completely overwhelming and terrifying. And then once you kind of push through it and you start really thinking, this is my last breath, you become hyper-focused on your body. And I know my experience of it, it does really bring you to the sense of, wow, this might be my last breath. This might be this kind of like tiny little act in the universe, but it's also this kind of like incredibly miraculous, uh, you know, celestial event that I'm kind of taking part in that I don't ever think about during my day because you just are focused on other things. So in that way, I think nihilism, which is such a big concept, can really awaken us to these actually kind of marvelous, tiny little realities of our life that we just gloss over. It's good stuff from Wendy uh, Seyfried. I'm sure some of you are very sympathetic to what she's saying. She's the author of The Sunny Nihilist, a book uh, that is just out today, uh, perhaps miraculously, perhaps um, coincidentally with another book about philosophy. Uh, Wendy, we're going to take a short break and then I want to come back and talk about the cultural and political um, context and implications of your work. So hold on, everyone. We'll see you in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by 
in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. Welcome back, everyone. I'm talking to Wendy Seifert, the author of The Sunny Nihilist, a book that is just out, um, a declaration, the subtitle, a declaration of the pleasure of pointlessness. Some people, I think, Wendy, as you know, will be offended, angered, or challenged with this idea of pointlessness. They'll say, well, what about politics? What about making society a better place? What about improving the world? How do you respond to political, communitarian critics of nihilism? Yeah, I think that that's a super understandable question. And I think for most people, it's where their minds go first. I mean, political nihilism is, you know, a subset of nihilism. My kind of feeling with that is, yes, the first knee-jerk reaction is, you know, if nothing matters in the whole world, well, then why don't I just eat profiteroles in my underwear and, like, not wear sunscreen for the rest of my life? Is that but your <laughs> fantasy, profiteroles in your underwear? <laughs> You know, that was a sneak peek of my weekend. That's what's going on under the desk. Um, but what I would kind of say to that is when you spend a lot of time really thinking about these theories, you kind of have this really interesting sort of deconstruction of self that happens, that once you get over, you know, the existential terror of saying that, well, I don't matter, nothing I love matters, nothing around me actually matters. As I said before, you kind of go through this process of the world feels very big and very small and the smallness of that we've sort of spoken about, this kind of maybe uh, appreciation of the small pleasures in the life, the miracles of your own existence and your own body. But you also get to this point where you say, yes, it would be lovely to spend all day eating profiteroles, but we do live in a society. In your underwear, right? In your underwear. That's very important to the whole thing. Um, but we do live in a society where you do have to get out of bed and go to work and you have to kind of like na basically navigate your life towards something. Uh, we can't all be just a philosopher on a hilltop. But I think what then starts kind of happening is you say, well, if I accept that I don't matter and my pleasure and these messages that the whole world is orientated towards me and I am special and I am the focus of the universe, which I think a lot of our kind of public messaging is about, the individual and the kind of cultivation of the individual, you start looking beyond yourself and you say, yes, okay, everything is meaningless, but
but what is going to maybe last a little bit longer than myself that this energy that I do have to you know devote to something eventually can be channeled towards and I think that where that kind of exploration goes is really personal and it's really different for everyone else Um, some people that might be you know I really want to make the world safer for my kids I really want to make my neighborhood feel like a vital safe place that people can live and thrive I really want everyone to have access to healthcare and education and security so they can explore these ideas in the same way that I've had the the privilege of doing it. I chat quite a bit about it, but my personal experience has been very much to re-anchor me into my commitment to environmentalism and activism. This idea that when you start really thinking about like the fleetingness of human life and identity, you do start maybe thinking a little bit more about this idea that, well, the only thing that is kind of permanent in some way is literally the planet beneath our feet. But yet every day I make decisions that completely put my flash in the pan existence as a priority over the health of the planet in general. And I think when you're starting to make decisions about how you want to live your life and how you want to kind of maybe once you've deconstructed all the values that society's placed on you, started to construct your own values, you can start seeing yourself as part of like a larger picture. You know, you are, it's interesting, Wendy, you've used the D word a couple of times, deconstruct, deconstruction. A lot of people associate postmodernism and the whole deconstructionist movement or post-structuralist movement, particularly Derrida, French school, of very heavily influenced by, by Nietzsche. Is there a, a postmodern element to uh, the sunny nihilist? Were you influenced by the, the Derrida's, uh, Baudrillard also wrote about um, uh, nihilism, suggesting um, that postmodernity itself, which he, I think, in part is a theorist of, uh, reflects our nihilistic epoch. What's your response to the, the Baudrillard take on all this? Yeah, I love that. And I think that postmodernism and nihilism do sit really nicely together. I love that term, uh, nihilistic epoch. Funny, I was chatting to some friends recently because I am 34. I know people make too much about uh, generational titles, but I'm a classic millennial. And I think a lot of this book is written. What, what does that mean, a classic millennial? Uh, well, you know, I think the, what is it, the Vox reading, coffee sipping, socialist loving, you know. Yeah. Uh, you write for Vox, so you're, you're part of, <laughs> not only are you a millennial, but you are a, a spokesperson for the generation. I'm a, a picture book millennial, I would say. Um, but, and a lot of the book is obviously from that perspective. And obviously a lot of the people I interact with are kind of, you know, Gen Y and Gen Z. And something we chat a lot about is this idea of deconstruction, which I love that you picked up. And why is it that people maybe on this side of 40 find these ideas of like tearing down social structures so much less confronting than maybe people a little bit older than us? You know, when I talk to my parents who I would say are, have become pretty progressive in their How old age. are your parents? They're in their early 70s. Right. And I mean, these were people who, you know, started out as like ardent capitalists who are now voting for the Greens and, you know, reading about socialism. And I think, you know, they say things like, but, you know, we'll never escape capitalism. Well, these systems exist and they can never change. Whereas I think if you said to a 20-year-old, you know, maybe we do need to completely change the political system or the f- nuclear family or the way we consider how we work. I think it is less confronting for young people. And I'm interested in why is that? Why are we kind of less, I guess, uh, less shook 
by these sort of big ideas of deconstruction. And something that, you know, does come up a lot is for someone like me, I was 12, you know, during 9-11, I was at university during the uh, global financial crisis. I'm actually pregnant right now. I'm, you know, having my first child during Congratulations. COVID. Thank you, during the COVID pandemic. I think for these this generation that has come of age as these systems that we were told were completely bulletproof have sort of fallen apart around us, as opposed to being maybe as terrifying as it would be for our parents who were told that the world would always be like this. It can be kind of liberating because we've grown up in a world where everything is kind of transient and you have been shown, you know, the biggest pillars can fall and the world can be changed. And sometimes that is, you know, for ill, but also if it can be done for ill, it can be done for good. I wonder, Wendy, whether there's a historical analogy here to the middle of the 19th century, particularly in Russia, the concept of nihilism acquired great currency in the middle of the 19th century, particularly through Turgenev's fathers and sons. Uh, Dostoevsky, of course, was a great critic of um, of nihilism. We did a show on Dostoevsky uh, just before uh, the new year, which was particularly interesting with Kevin Birmingham, who just wrote a wonderful biography of him. Do you think we're in a similar period? You're suggesting that the big structures are falling apart. Everything we took for granted, capitalism, the world international system, an America-centric world, democracy, all these things which seem God-given and essential and eternal are now being undermined in a similar way to the generation that uh, Turgenev wrote about in Fathers and Sons, which ultimately, of course, resulted in the Russian Revolution. Yeah, 100%. I think that's exactly it. And, you know, you think about what life would have been like for this, these men, and I'm sure many women whose names we just didn't get to hear. But, I mean, imagine being around during the Russian Revolution where you're not only told that this, uh, you know, this royal lineage is political, but it is deigned by God, and then seeing it completely come apart in front of you. In a way, you know, our relation to, you know, politics is different now. But, I mean, it's it's sort of the same, you know. I was chatting to someone the other day and they said something, you know, how does nihilism fit in with, you know, the idea of absolute truth? And the person who asked me was a little bit older than me. And I was shocked by this fact that she sort of had a belief in the fact that absolute truth exists, whereas I had grown up maybe in this sort of more postmodernist reality where even working as a journalist, maybe my understanding of media structures was so much more fractured than hers, where I was just like, oh, it doesn't even occur to me that people would think that truth is an absolute concept. I think we are in this world where we are, we have been forced to become comfortable with the idea of, as you said, sort of unshakable foundations. Right, and uh, in terms of, you, you introduce yourself as a millennial, in terms of your generation, the issue is of course the environment. You mentioned it earlier. We had a wonderful writer, Bathsheba Demuth, on the show recently, who has a wonderful new book out on the Bering Strait and the indigenous peoples of the Bering Strait. I was struck in your book, um, uh, Wendy, by the fact that you have quite a lot of references to the Kulin Nation, the indigenous peoples of uh, southeastern Australia, um, and then and, uh, the, the Wurundjeri Austra Aboriginal Australian uh, nation is there is it coincidental that your interest in nihilism and your interest in indigenous peoples in pre-industrial pre-european peoples 
go hand in hand? I don't think so at all. And I would say that's also very threaded with my relationship to activism. Um, I'm on Wurundjeri land and it is something that I think about a lot and it has come up again in my relationship to nihilism, but also to my relationship to activism. Something that I find really fortifying and interesting about First Nations approaches to kind of community and culture and nature is again, this deconstruction of this, the individual and a relationship to time. And this idea of, you know, you hear about it a lot that you're just the kind of groundskeepers of the land. You know, you live as a part of something. Something that First Nations activists talk about a lot is this idea of that we're not on, we're not sort of just on country, we're part of country and we're just like a piece of nature. You know, we are, we're the same as a tree or a blade of grass or a river. And I think sometimes when you say this to people, it can, they can kind of eye roll and it can sound a little bit hippy dippy. But I think it's actually such a nourishing way to not only think about protecting nature, but also to see yourself, I mean, in relationship to your family, in relationship to society. At the end of the day, when I feel really overwhelmed, you know, these are really big concepts that when you're actually just sitting at your desk feeling sick about a gross email you just got can be hard to like center yourself within. I'll sometimes look at my little dog, Stevie, or I'll look out the window at the flowering. Uh, my neighbor's got a morning glory bush that's looking very lovely because it's before nine o'clock in the morning here. And I'll sort of say, in the scope of human history, like I matter as much as like this little dog or this tree. We're all just kind of like part of this larger ecosystem that's playing a very small part that's going to disappear and no one's going to think about. And again, rather than being crushing, when you can think about that, it can be actually really fortifying and kind of liberating. Very liberating if one imagines that machines are going to perhaps replace us, certainly do all our work for us. We've done a lot of shows and you mentioned work. We've done a lot of shows on a post-work, post at least industrial work culture. We've done all sorts of writers um, uh, imagining this world, again, going back to Indigenous traditions. How you know, with AI, with automated machines, with 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 smart algorithms, uh, how much does your theory and your manifesto of nihilism connect with the digital revolution and the way in which machines may eventually free us from industrial and perhaps even post-industrial labor? Something that's so interesting when we think about this idea of um, sort of machines coming in and, you know, doing all this heavy lifting, what is it in the, in the time machine when they, that Victorian novel, when they go forward and they realize that humans have been kind of been replaced by machines and live for pleasure. I mean, getting past the whole idea of universal income and how we're actually gonna like support ourselves in this reality is I think it kind of holds an interesting merit into this question of why do we work and what does work kind of promise us? And something that I think about a lot is how we can kind of detangle ideas of meaning and ideas of value and you know meaning obviously i have a lot to say about and i'm very skeptical of and i'm really skeptical of it in terms of work because i think what's actually happened is so many of our jobs when we actually really think about them the value in them is not really that clear anymore i know i've worked what did your father what did your parents do you said they they're in their 70s have they retired they retired. My dad was an accountant and my mom was a physio. And did they um, get their meaning from their work, particularly your father? Well, this is what I think about a lot. My parents worked. Um, I couldn't 
to this day, I don't think I could tell you what my dad did. They didn't talk about it, they didn't think about it. It didn't define their identities. It was something they did, you know, for eight hours a day so they could come home and live their actual life. And I think that is a trick that a lot of people have lost. And when we think about why we work now, you know, work to pay the bills, work to come home and put food on the table. But I think it's very dangerous when we're in this sort of situation now where work and identity and meaning have become very enmeshed. And I think that is a point of exploitation that we're seeing a lot of. And I'm a lot of this book talks about sort of burnout culture, which has also been in the zeitgeist a lot too. And I think that's something that people have become very conscious of that a job when it's a job is fine, but a job when it's like a reason to exist and a, a core part of an identity is very toxic. And that's something that I think when we start thinking, well, if our jobs are fundamentally not going to be actually as practically valuable in the future, you know, they're saying with machines, even now, we should be working less than we ever did, but we're finding ways to work more. And that's not because we actually need all these jobs. It's because we've been so conditioned, what does Jenny O'Dell call it, capitalist productivity, that we are nothing if we're not performing, that we will create work for ourselves as opposed to take the opportunity to work less. And I even find this now, I consciously work four days a week. I sort of did my contract and my salary and everything because I sort of said to myself, I don't want my life to be completely in my desk. I want to have time during the week to actually enjoy the life that I'm paying for. But it's pretty hard to break out of the habit of sitting down on that fifth day and not checking your emails or not assigning myself kind of meaningless busy work because we are so conditioned to just work. Well, this may well be the manifesto of um, the millennial generation. Uh, Wendy Seifert's uh, new book, The Sunny Nihilist, The Declaration of the Pleasure of Pointlessness. Um, it's a very pointed book. There's nothing pointless about the book itself, and there's certainly nothing pointless about Wendy. Congratulations, Wendy, um, in a nice, warm, sunny Melbourne, I'm imagining, in the heart of your summer. We're in the depths of winter here. What else should people be reading, either for their summer or winter pleasure, in, in addition to your new book, The Sunny Nihilist? Well, I just mentioned Jenny O'Dell, um, her book, How to Do Nothing, I think if we're talking yeah. about pointlessness, is a great read and was very inf uh, influential. It's a couple of years old now, but Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino, I think has become the, yeah. you know, we said the end of religion, probably the Bible, the proxy Bible to a lot of people I know. That was also very influential in this book. Uh, talk, we chatted a little bit about activism. There's this really wonderful book called How to Talk About Climate Change in a way that makes a difference which I read a few years ago, which Who's it, by? Uh, it is by, I'm blanking on it right now, but I'm sure if your lovely listeners give it a Google, it'll come up. Uh, but it's a, a really interesting breakdown of how to kind of constructively and in a maybe more bipartisan way uh, address some of these issues. I think some of us coming off Christmas dinners with family members might've been feeling. And to be honest, when I think about what I'm actually reading at the moment, maybe talking about burnout, I'm dipped back into Ian Forrest's room with a view. I went into a bookshop a little while ago mm. and I sort of said, you know, I'm done with the 21st century for a little while. I think I need to uh, go back to a few fields of violets and bourgeois drawing rooms. So maybe you're not quite the nihilist you pretend to be, Wendy. Anyway, it's a wonderful book and an excellent conversation. Uh, Wendy Seifert's new book, The Sunny Nihilist, a declaration of the pleasure of pointlessness. I think one of the uh, a book which captures the zeitgeist of her generation and of all generations in 2022. Happy New Year, Wendy. 
best of luck with the baby. And I'd love to have you come back on the show again to talk about nihilism, perhaps in association with Megan Sullivan. You can fight it out about whether or not <laughs> God is dead and whether there still is any meaning in the le left in life. So thank you so much. Good luck again. And we'll see you in the not too distant future. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.